So this is Genesis 22, verses 1 through 18. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went, both of them together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, My father. And he said, Here I am, my son. He said, Behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. <clears throat> then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, Here I am. He said, Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. <clears throat> Excuse me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, The Lord Will Provide, as it is said to this day, On the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, by myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son. I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. Thank you, Tricia, for reading. Friends, that, uh, that story that is familiar, but also uh, one of the most um, powerful and, and, and really unexpected stories in the Old Testament is something that we'll come to in our, uh, in our look at Hebrews this morning. The author of Hebrews saw something in this story as he read his his Old Testament, he saw something in this story that, that teaches us something deeply significant about who our God is and about who we are. We're going to uh, turn once again to Hebrews chapter 6, and before we read, we'll 
pray together, but if you'll go ahead and open to Hebrews chapter 6. We're going to finish Hebrews 6 today. And next week, we will do all of Hebrews 7. We're looking ahead. That is not a, not a short chapter. We're going to do a lot next week. We're going, to, we're going to take that whole chapter, which really tells one story, but it's packed in. There's a lot. Uh, the, the altar returns to this idea of Jesus as the high priest, and, and it's a, a meaty chapter, if you will. It's, it's, a, it's full of, of uh, uh, things that show us who our Savior is. And we'll return and we'll look at Hebrews chapter 7. We'll do all of chapter 7 next week, and then all of chapter 8, which is a shorter chapter the following week. Um, but this morning we will finish the last seven or eight verses of Hebrews chapter 6. Let's pray as we, as we go to God's Word. Our great and holy, glorious God, we've, we've sung about who you are. You, you invite us and command us to sing about who you are because, because we, we ought to remind ourselves consistently of the truths that you've communicated to us, shown us in in Scripture, but also in our lives. You being the the sovereign king, the one who's also stooped down to us, revealed yourself to us, but also brought us up out of the mire, the muck of our lives. You have restored in us your image, you you are working in us, even as we continue to struggle with sin and with, and with going back to other things, you, you continue to work holiness in us, obedience in us, discipleship in us. And Lord, we, we are so grateful that you are so patient. You are so patient with us. As we come to your word this morning, we, we, we pray that you would work on us with this what you call a two-edged sword, that you would lay bare our struggles, our sins, our, the ways that our hearts wander, and, and that you would draw us to yourself, that you would point us to the one who is the anchor for our souls. Help us when we feel like we're drifting. Help us to cling to that anchor. And Lord, uh, as we as we gather this morning as well. We pray for those who are sharing your gospel around the world, those who we, we support and par- partner with. And we pray specifically this morning for Joel and Elizabeth Peterson who are in the Middle East and are working to, to be good neighbors. They're, they're working to raise their family and, 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 uh, and, to, and to work and to, and to be a witness through everything that they do, even just the mundane daily parts of life. And we pray that you would help them. Pray that you would give them strength in the midst of a culture where they are in a vast minority in terms of, of uh, religious commitments. Pray that you would uh, help them to be witnesses for your gospel and, and, and encourage them when they need to be encouraged and when they feel lonely. Lord, we pray that you would uh, help them to spread forth your word and help us, help us this morning to be shaped by your word, but also to be people who then go out and live lives that are changed and transformed by your word. In the name of Jesus, by the help of the Spirit, we pray. Amen. Uh, 
A few weeks ago, we looked, when we started Hebrews chapter 5, uh, at this idea that Jesus is the, the perfect high priest, the high priest who fills all the qualifications of a high priest. And then if you've been with us the last couple of weeks, uh, we, we saw the author sort of pause. He's talking about Jesus. He's talking about how wonderful Jesus is, how much we can cling to Jesus. And then he pauses. And he, and he turns towards his readers. And we had a, a, a tough couple of passages these last couple of weeks. If you, if you weren't here, it, 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 was, it was not an easy two weeks of passages where, where the author turns towards his people and, and he stops and he says, before we go any further, before I talk any more about who Jesus is, I need to talk to you. And, and, and he confronts them. And he says, friends, you have been spiritually sluggish. You've been stagnant. You're in danger. He confronts them and he challenges them. He says, he says you're like adults who haven't learned yet to, to eat solid food. You're like adults who are still nursing at your mother's breast. You, 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 you have not matured as you ought to. And then, he, and then he warns them, as we saw last week, he warns them of the great danger of falling away. Don't fall away from God's grace. Don't fall away from your commitment to follow the Lord, because if you do, there is no coming back. But then he, then he encourages them. And we saw at the end of last week, even as he warns them, and this is the wonderful thing about Scripture, and Scripture does this all throughout, but maybe, maybe the best example of this in all of Scripture is in Hebrews chapter 6, where we get these stark, harsh warnings and confrontations that, 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 that dig into our souls and that call us to, to, to look for areas where we are in danger ourselves, that, that, that call us to, 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 to use God's Word to... to to convict us, to pull us away from those things that, that are drawing us away from Christ, that are causing us to, to drift off. But then he encourages us. God's word not only confronts us with the, with the truth of the gospel, but it also comforts us with the truth of the gospel. And, and the author of Hebrews does this. He's, he's, a, he's a pastor, as we've seen, who, who knows God's word and knows his people. He knows how much they need to be convicted, but also knows how much they need to be comforted. So in those Final verses we looked at last week, he encourages them. He says, he says, we feel sure of better things for you all. We feel sure of better things. I want to start our reading this week uh, just overlapping a couple of verses of what we read last week. We're going to start in verse 11, and then we're going to focus in on verses 13 to 20. We'll start in verse 11, and we'll read all the way down to verse 20. This is God's word, Hebrews chapter 6. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself saying, surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus, Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it 
with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Friends, uh, this, this passage is, is the author's way of building on the encouragement that he gave in our passage last week. And what I want you to see this morning as we come to this passage, we're going to see a couple of things. We're going to see, first of all, the fact that we are a people who need a hope to hold on to. We're a people who need a hope to hold on to, and we're going to see this in a couple of different ways. But, but not only are we a, a people who need a hope to hold on to, the second thing we're going to see is we're going to see that, that the author shows us how, how God, in his very character, in who he is and what he's done for us, uh, is himself has, has become the hope that we ought to hold on to, that we can hold on to, really the only hope that there is to hold on to. So we are people who need a hope to hold on to, and we see in these, this passage a God who is himself the very hope that we can hold on to. We saw in the last couple of weeks that the author has a deep desire. We read about this once again in those first two verses, 11 and 12, that we looked at last week, but I overlapped uh, with this week. The, the author has a deep desire. He says, we desire, we long for each one of you to show the same earnestness. He doesn't want us to be stuck in spiritual stupor. He doesn't want us to be, this, to be uh, stuck in that stagnation that he's talked about. He wants us to show earnestness. And, and, and what he says is that in order to show earnestness, one of the things that you ought to do is to, is to be imitators. To be imitators of those who have true faith and are true heirs of the promises of God. And, and so the author points to, in our passage this week, he immediately turns and he points to the, sort of the supreme example of someone worth imitating in the Old Testament. And that's Abraham. Abraham is, is set forth as, as this figure who we ought to follow, ought to imitate his faith. And Tricia just read for us this passage that's hugely significant. It's this, it's this test of Abraham's faith, and he, and he proves his his great faith. And if you read the Abraham story, you know that Abraham is far from perfect. Abraham messes up time and again. There, there are at least three or four significant uh, 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 chapters that highlight Abraham's sin and distrust of God's promises. But at the same time, we get to Genesis 22, and God calls him with this, this sort of this, this significant test, this supreme test of his faith. And what Abraham does is he has learned to fully put his trust in God. To fully put his trust, as the author of Hebrews will point out later in the book, in the fact that, that God would raise his son from the dead before he would not be true to his promises. This is a significant test for Abraham, and, 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 and we are, like Abraham, people who need a hope to hold on to in order to be able to have this kind of faith. We need a hope to hold on to. 
I want you to see a few uh, factors here, a few different ways that the author of Hebrews shows us that we're a people that, we, that need a hope, a hope to hold on to. First, there's the context of this passage. In one chapter, as we just saw, that the author's gone from, from a scathing confrontation and a challenge and an intense warning now to, to a deep encouragement. Up until now, the focus has been almost exclusively on on our part, if you will, on our action. He was talking about what Jesus does in the first part of chapter 5, and then he turned and he said, I need to talk to you about your actions for a few minutes. I need to talk to you about your own spiritual state. So he's been talking to them about how they've been dangerously close to spiritual stagnation, about how, how they need to be warned about not falling away. He's encouraged them in their actions and urge them to, to keep pursuing earnest action. And the, the author knows that, that God is really acting in all of this. He's, he's shown us that throughout the book of Hebrews, but, but he's focused in on their actions for a little while. He's focused in on, on their part, on the faith that they need to show, the growth that they need to show. And now, now what he does is he recognizes that there's a danger in this. There's a danger in these warnings that he's given. And it's really a twofold danger. When we, when we start to think about these, these warnings that, uh, of falling away, the danger of falling away, and the danger that we might be a people who sometimes drift off, uh, there are two dangers that we can fall into. The first is that we can start to despair. We can start to despair because you, you start to think about the danger of, of of, of your own actions drifting away from God and you begin to think about just how weak you are, how insecure you are, how prone you are to those things that you look for life in. You, you, you begin to, to, to think about how many times have I messed up? How many times have I gone back to, to these sin patterns in my life? If it's up to me, if the focus is on my actions, well, then I'm going to develop a deep sense of insecurity. Or, on the other hand, perhaps even more dangerous, as we look throughout Scripture, we might not develop a deep sense of insecurity, but we might develop a deep sense of self-righteousness. On the one hand, I'm, I, I might think, well, well, I am so prone to drift away. What on earth am I going to do? But on the other hand, we might think, well, I, I'm doing pretty well. I'm doing all right, and if my actions, I feel like, I feel like I'm not really prone to drift off. I feel like I'm, I'm living a holy life of obedience, and I begin to think, I'm, I'm good enough to stay in. I'm good enough to, to keep myself in. I'm, I, I, I'm, I'm doing okay. Maybe I don't need God's grace. Maybe I do all right on my own. I, I don't think we'd ever voice that. <laughs> but I think sometimes we live like that. Sometimes we begin to start to drift into relying on how well we've done, how much we've cultivated a pattern of obedience in our life, how much work for justice we've done, how, how pure we've been and what we've looked at, and we start to think, I'm doing okay. And the Bible calls us to, to, to live a life of holiness, to live a life of obedience, but, but what the author recognizes here is that there's a danger. There's a danger in, in starting to rely on what we've done, and he brings us back. 
And what he does in these final verses of chapter 6 is he, is he says, we've talked about your actions, we needed to talk about your actions, but now we need to talk about God's actions. Now we need to talk about who your God is. So we're people who, who need a hope, but we're prone to find hope in ourselves. Or we're prone to lose hope. Often depending on how well we perceive that we're doing. But the, the author doesn't just show us that we're people who need hope by, by the way that, that he frames this passage, the context of the passage. I want you to see how he describes us in this passage itself. Look at verses 17 and 18. It says this, So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, see here how he describes us, we who have fled for refuge, might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We who have fled for refuge. The author has, has already described his hearers, and, and by virtue of that, we who are reading this, this text now, this letter now, he's described us as, as those who in chapter 2 might drift away as those who have been delivered from slavery, as those who are tempted and, and need his help, as those who in chapter 3 uh, need to be aware of an evil, unbelieving heart so that we don't fall away. All these different vulnerabilities the author has already described in us, that we are a vulnerable, vulnerable people and we ought to recognize our vulnerability. So it's not a new thing now when the author of Hebrews describes us here as, as being yet another vulnerable group. He describes us as people who are refugees. He describes us as people who, are, who have fled for refuge. This is a, a word that is used almost exclusively in the Old Testament of, of, of the, the, uh, the folks who have uh, needed to leave their homes in order to flee to a city of refuge in God's law. Uh, it, there are a variety of reasons that this happened in God's law. One of the main ones was if, if I unintentionally... Uh, I, um, did some action that resulted in the death of my neighbor, that, that God's law made a provision for that person to, uh, to, to die, for, for a relative of that neighbor who was killed to, to come and to take the person's life who killed them. It's, uh, one person's blood for another. Kind of the justice there. But, but if it was an unintentional act, this person would leave their home and flee for refuge to what God had established as cities of refuge so that uh, so that justice could, could be done, so that, so that, uh, so that the, the actions could, become, or could come before a court, and so that uh, true justice could be meted out. So the idea here is that we are, are characterized as people who have fled for refuge, as people who are refugees, who have had to leave our homes in order to find refuge somewhere else. And, and, and by the way, this is not an unusual way for God to characterize his people. He does this throughout the Old Testament. If you read the books of Leviticus and Deuteronomy, uh, God comes back to this idea over and over and over again. He says, I've rescued you from slavery in Egypt. And he gives commands consistently that, that we ought to uh, be those as, as God's community of justice and righteousness to be those who care for the sojourner 
care for the one who's traveling, care for the one who is in the most vulnerable position in society, who's away from their home. But God always gives a justification for this that's, that's rooted in the fact that you yourself were refugees. That, that without me rescuing you in the first place, you would not have a home. And because of that, because of what you are characterized as, you go out and you treat others likewise. You identify with the refugee. You identify with the sojourner. You don't identify as somebody who's got it all together. But you ought to go and care for the vulnerable. And what the author of Hebrews recognizes in all these places throughout the chapters so far, but in this passage as well. He, he recognizes that, that we are a vulnerable people, whether we recognize it or not, whether we realize it or not. And if we are followers of God, we ought to identify with the vulnerable. As a side note, there's a constant temptation, I think, in our own culture to project strength, to project the idea that we that we are strong, whether it's in the war of ideas or, or cultures or practices, whether, whether it's in, uh, in uh, uh, forums on social media or whether it's, it's in, in, in the ways that we only speak with those who affirm our positions. Uh, we, we have a, a, a tendency to want to project and build strength. And what God consistently does in Scripture is he cuts against that. Because he knows how much of it. That's not a new temptation of our society. That's always been a temptation. He cuts against that. He says, he says, identify with the vulnerable. If you understand the gospel story, you realize just how vulnerable you are. You realize just how silly it is to, to, to seek to project that you have it all together, to project strength. And this has huge implications for us in how we how we participate in society. Rather than projecting strength and focusing on winning the war of ideas or whatever it is, although there, we ought to stand for truth, but rather than focusing on, on winning the war of ideas, where are, we, where are we identifying with the vulnerable? Where are we identifying with those who are weak? Where are we coming alongside them because we know that that is us? That when we stand before God, we stand before a God who has pulled us out, who's become a source of refuge when we had none, and we have no place with him outside of his grace. The author identifies us as people who are in need, in desperate need in desperate need of a, a hope. People who are vulnerable, and he identifies himself as a God who, who cares for the vulnerable. If we're not vulnerable, if we don't recognize our vulnerability, then we don't recognize our need for God's grace and the hope that's presented to us here. And friends, Scripture consistently shows us that we must recognize our vulnerability in order to be the kind of people who receive God's grace. What's amazing here 
is that this identification with the vulnerable, he says it's not only something that pulls you away from moral actions or, or actions of justice and righteousness that, would be, uh, that are commanded by God to care for those who are vulnerable around you, but it also is a spiritual danger to you. You don't identify with the vulnerable. If you don't see this vulnerability in yourself, this utter need of God's grace, then, then that is spiritually dangerous for you because you don't recognize the utter need of hope that you have. Are we a people who are willing to identify in this way? Identify how much we need the hope that only God can give. So the author of Hebrews presents to us a picture of ourselves as people who are in desperate need of of hope. But then he presents us with a clear sense that God is the only one who can fulfill this hope. God is the only one who can act as our hope. And he he does this in three ways. First of all, he shows how God is the absolute, almighty, eternal one. He shows how God is the absolute, almighty, eternal one. While the previous sections, as we saw, focused on our action, this this section brings us back to God's action. Look at verses 13 and 14. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, surely I will bless you and multiply you. The author of Hebrews, as he's, as he's looking at his Old Testament, he's, he's seen these different promises that God makes over and over again to Abraham. He saw in Genesis 12 how God promised Abraham that he would bless him and that through God's work in Abraham's life, Abraham would be a blessing to all nations. In Genesis 15, God reiterates his promise uh, to Abraham that he will bless him. Uh, and in Genesis 17, he reiterates it again. Genesis 18, he reiterates it again. And, and all of this is happening over the course of decades. Abraham has been given these promises and now he's got to wait and they haven't been fulfilled yet. They're all contingent on the fact that God has promised him a son and the son has not come and he's beyond the age of being able to have a son. And it's been 25 years since God made that promise. So Abraham had to wait. And in Genesis 22, the author's reading about Abraham's life, and, and he sees in Genesis 22 this passage that Trisha just read, not only the story, but, he, but did you notice at the end of the story what happened? In verses 16 to 18 of, of the passage Trisha read, it, it, God says this, he says, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you. And I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. God reiterates his blessing as he's done so many times already in the Abraham story. He, he, he tells again of the promises, but he does something a little bit different here, the author notices. He doesn't just make a promise, but he says, by myself I have sworn. He doesn't just make a promise, but he makes an oath. And the idea of an oath is, is maybe a little bit foreign to us. I mean, we have... We have some semblance of that still around, particularly in a court of law, when you swear that you're going to tell the truth, and what do you swear on? You swear on the Bible, and it's one of the few places that, that, um, that we still have sort of this, uh, it's almost like a relic of the past now, this idea that, that we could swear by something that's agreed upon as a higher source of, of truth. That's not really something that our society holds to now, but we still do that practice. We swear on on something that's supposed to be a higher source of truth. But back then, those who took, took oaths, as one commentator says, made themselves liable to the judgment of either God 
or the emperor, depending on who they made the oath by, if they didn't keep the oath. So, so, so what you're doing when you swear on something higher than you is you're saying, if I don't keep this, if I don't hold to this, then I'm willing to be judged by that person or that source of, of, uh, of greatness. <laughs> this is a widespread practice in the, in the ancient world of swearing by something greater than yourself. But who could God swear by? Who's greater than God? There was a, there was a third century rabbi who... who who looking at some of the, the early texts said, it, it, when, when he sees the same passage of God swearing by himself, he says, well, if God had sworn by heaven and earth, then even heaven and earth are, are going to pass away at some point, that God's oath still could pass away. That, that, that the only thing God could swear by is himself, and the author of Hebrews sees the same truth earlier on. Who could God swear by? The whole point of an oath is swearing by something greater than yourself. So one of the first things we're confronted with in this passage is that there is no one greater than God. That there's no one more eternal. That there's no one even on the same plane of being. He's eternal. He's almighty. He's ultimate. There's no reference point outside of him that could add any credence to who he is. Because of this, we can trust him. Because of this, we can, we can hold to him. This, this picture of an anchor for the soul, this picture of something that we can hold on to that doesn't move is only possible because the one who we hold on to, the one who's presented us to us in this passage is the one who, who is greater than anything else. No one can move God. God has no reference point outside of himself that's greater so he swears by himself. But then I want you to see this as well. He's not only almighty and eternal, he's also perfectly consistent. The author is very concerned to show us this, that he's perfectly consistent. He does this in a couple different ways. He, he says, first of all, that, that there's something that's impossible for God. You notice that? There's something that, you might say, wait just a minute. Don't we read in other places in Scripture that nothing is impossible with God? God shows up to to, to Mary and announces the birth of, of Jesus, the virgin birth, and she, she's incredulous, and God says nothing is impossible with God. He says this in a variety of different places in Scripture. So why do we see here that it's impossible for God to lie? Well, there are some things that are impossible for God in the sense that God will always be true to who he is. He will always be perfectly consistent. He will, always, he will never act outside of his character. It's an absurdity to think that God, it's almost like saying that you can put a square peg into a round hole or the, or the, the idea of the unstoppable force and the immovable object. It's, it's, those questions are, are an absurdity. There's no, there's no answer to them because, because they're absurd questions to ask in the first place. And God... Uh, to act, for God to act against his character is an absurdity because he is perfectly consistent. He's the source of all goodness. He will not change. So the author says it's impossible for God to lie. And then he, and then he uses this legal language. He shows us, he says there's, there's, uh, there's this way that God has shown us in verse 17 more convincingly. Or he gave, this is really, it's a courtroom kind of language here that he uses. It's almost like he's saying he gave all more abundant proof. We see here the one who, who is 
the almighty judge on the throne being willing to step, as you, if you will, into the defendant's chair. He had no need to step down into the defendant's chair, but, but being willing to step down into the defendant's chair and to give us proof so that, so that we might have assurance. So, that, so We should have already been sure of his promises because he's the almighty one. He's, he's, he's on the throne, but what he does is he, is he now gives us more abundant proof of it. He shows, he says, I am perfectly consistent and I will be perfectly consistent. So I'm gonna bind myself to these promises. He, he's so perfectly consistent that the author says that his purposes are, are unchangeable. We read about these unchangeable purposes and how they work in our lives in Ephesians chapter 1. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. Our salvation rests on his eternal purposes, his perfect consistency. And because of this, friends, not only can we trust in him, trust in the Almighty One, but we can have patience. This is what the author shows us. We're people who can have patience. Because God is consistent, we can be absolutely sure that his promises will come to fulfillment which means we can wait for him. One commentator says, we live in a world of add water and mix foods, but God is not in the business of add water and mix disciples. Not in the, he's not in the business of, of quick fixes in our lives. He's in the business of forming people and, and, and helping us to trust helping us to become the kind of people who know him more because we're willing to hold on to that truth that he is perfectly consistent. But friends, the author doesn't stop there. He doesn't just show us that God is eternal and almighty. He doesn't just show us that he's uh, perfectly consistent, but where all of these other parts of the passage are really woven together into material that, 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 that shows us why this is a hope for us is, is that the author emphasizes maybe most of all that he's extravagant, extravagantly gracious. He's extravagantly gracious. Why did God need to make an oath in the first place? If he's perfectly consistent and he made a promise to Abraham, why did he need to swear by himself? Why, need, why did he need to add this second level of making a promise? And the point is here that, that it wasn't because God needed it. It was because we needed it. It's not because God's word was ever in doubt, but it's because we struggle with doubt. God made a promise that would be true no matter what. He didn't need to make an oath, but he did because he knows how much we need assurance. He knows how much we struggle to trust. So he gives us more than what we need. He gives us more than, than, than what ought to bring about faith in us, to, to show us over and over and over again. He gives us, if you will, a double assurance of his promises, a double assurance that, that becomes an anchor for our soul, the author says. It's not an anchor for God's word, but notice it's an anchor for you. It's an anchor that shows us how unwavering God will be. He's extravagantly gracious and in, in showing us this and knowing who we are and knowing how much we need to hear this. But also notice this, he, he desires to make 
his promises known. Did you see that in verse 17? So when God desired to show more convincingly, this is a word that expresses his, his want. He, he, he guarantees his own commitments. He wants to make known to you the promises that he's working out in your life. In, in, in the, the, there's a scholar who argues here that the difference between God's promise and his oath is that an oath comes along with action. And, and, and what we saw in Genesis 22 is that, that's, that there's a demonstration of that. There's an action that happens. God doesn't just make a promise and reiterate it, but he makes an oath because there's an action that goes along with it. He rescues Isaac. He provides the sacrifice himself. But, but what, what's happened in our lives is that God hasn't simply provided a sacrifice like he did with Abraham that's, that's outside of himself. He hasn't brought in a separate sacrifice, but he himself has become the sacrifice. So that for you and me, as we are people who also need assurances, who also struggle with doubt, who also need to be able to trust in God's promises, God has given us not only those promises, but in action. In an action where he has laid his very life down for you and for me. Where he has become the sacrifice that, 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 that we can hold on to. That rather than perishing in our sins, he came. Rather than, than allowing us to die in the things that we held on to as so dear, he took on the punishment that we deserved. Because of this, friends, he's given us a, a double assurance, really a triple assurance that your hope is absolutely secure. The triple assurance, not only has he done it, but he's promised it to you, and he's sworn by himself. We, we see this actually acted out in a variety of ways in Scripture, and, and God gives us these signs as a guarantee, as a, as a display that help us to hold on to our assurance. And, and one of those signs is what we're going to do in just a couple of moments, which is receiving the Lord's Supper together. God, God gives us not only his word that we hear together, but he's given us a, actually a command to come and to participate in these ways that we can touch and feel and see his promises in front of us. We, that we have these, these assurances that are given to us because we're a people that struggle with doubt and we need to see these things. We need to taste these things. It's so easy for us to begin to doubt God's promises and his consistency and God says, come again and again and again to my table where I will continue to show you my grace so that you might be assured even as you struggle with doubt. But the very last thing that the author says in this passage is, is, just, is just beautiful. And I want you to see this as we come to the table. It's that, that the assurance, the anchor that he's shown us. You know, most anchors go down into the sea to stabilize a ship in the midst of storms. Well, he's, what he says is this anchor goes somewhere else. This anchor has gone into the inner place. What's the inner place? Well, the, the author, like he does so often, is using Old Testament language here. The, the inner place was that place where God's glory, God's, God's supreme uh, existence dwelt. And the, and the Holy of Holies was a place where no Israelite was allowed to go but the high priest once a year. And, and, and what, what the author shows us is that our anchor 
Jesus Christ has gone into that inner place. He's torn the curtain in two. He's made a way for you and for me to be in the presence of God. So we come to this table. Part of what we're doing is, is, is in some sense, we are, we are brought into that place. The, the Spirit of God has been given to you and me by Jesus Christ because of what Jesus Christ has done, and we are brought into that place just as Jesus has gone into that place. And it's an assurance of the promise that one day we will be there for eternity, the presence of our God. And all this need for hope, all this difficulty, all these things that cast doubt on our lives will be over and done with. This anchor for our souls will be all that we experience together. So as we come, let's hold on to this hope. Let's be assured together in God's promises as we go where Jesus has gone before us and made a way for us. And friends, I invite you, as we come to this table, this is the table of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not the table of Christ our Redeemer Church. It's not the table of anybody else but Jesus Christ. We invite you to come to this table if you hold to faith in Jesus Christ. If you know him, if you are united to him, come and participate in his grace at this table.